Hey, listener, this is the Bonsai Time Podcast coming at you. I want to say happy holidays, and this is a special episode coming from all of us. Myself, Ryan, Kelly, our new member of the Bonsai Time team, and our wonderful guest, the infamous Julian Sai. And uh, let's move on to the history of Christmas tree species and ultimately their stability for bonsai. So I took several different Christmas traditions and um, traditional tree species. And I, like I was saying, I explained their history based on different sources online. All of the sources will be linked in the show notes. There's some pictures here and there that we'll describe, which will also be in the show notes. Um, and we can just kind of see how much time we have. Um, if we don't get, in, get enough time for all of these, we can set some aside for next winter maybe maybe next christmas so don't feel like we have to get through all of these um and then maybe like when we annual annual christmas show julian you're sucked in forever sorry it wasn't intended to be over two (laughs) years maybe it will be (laughs) but yeah when we get to a certain time so we don't keep you guys too long then maybe we'll we'll decide what we're gonna set aside and we'll do the draft pick and explaining the bonsai properties of the remaining species okay So I'm going to start with this disclaimer. As we're discussing the history of winter solstice and Christmas traditions and their interactions with various tree species, much of it is tied with traditional beliefs around the Christmas holiday and Christianity. As we explain these roots, we are not intending to preach. We are only explaining this interesting history. Um, So I'll take the first category here. So that would be garland and wreaths. So how I kind of picture this going is you guys, or we all can read from the text here that I've written and quoted. And um, then we can explain the next category, like the plants that are used in that history. And uh, we can discuss anything that we're interested in along the way. Hold on, my dog wants to get into my room. Oh, again, Julian, thank you for hanging out with us, man. Oh, yeah, it's no it's no problem. Yeah. Hope you're, hope you're having a good time. Kelly, how are you yeah, doing over there? Yeah. Good. <laughs> I like this. This is the first kind of format Brian's brought up in a different way of experience through uh, a roundtable talk about holidays. <laughs> yeah, this, this is definitely um, a first. <laughs> yeah, I. Yeah. Uh, it may be weird, but since I teach to all these undergrads and, you know, half the time they're on their phone or giving you the blank stare, I spend a lot of time thinking like, how could I make this more interesting? <laughs> so this is a little micro experiment for that. Okay, so the first big unit, uh, if, you, if we can call it that, is garland and wreaths. <laughs> so long before the advent of Christianity, plants and trees that remained green all year had a special meaning for the people or for people in the winter. Just as people today decorate their homes during the festive season with pine, spruce, and fir trees, many ancient peoples hung evergreen boughs uh, over their doors and windows. In many countries, it was believed that evergreens would keep away witches, ghosts, evil spirits, and illness. So, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, ominous beliefs were attached to the shortest day of the year. 
People from Egypt and throughout Europe believe that the short daylight hours in winter was related to a god experiencing illness and that during the days when daylight got longer, so after the winter solstice, the god was recovering. People hung evergreen plants such as conifers in the north to remind them of the coming season of summer and palms and other plants in the south, like in Egypt, to symbolize the victory of life over death related to that god's illness. And in different areas, they would have kind of believed in a different god for that, but uh, that was overlapping in both of the regions. And the Romans, Celts, and Vikings similarly celebrated with symbolic plants during this time of year. And beyond just hanging garland, circular wreaths in particular enter history as decorations on houses, uh, and they kind of symbolize high status. And they were also used in high fashion for certain occasions, even being worn by Roman emperors. And lastly, they were given to winners of the original Greek Olympics also to wear. So the plants that are traditionally used in, uh, say, a, a garland or a wreath, um, one of them is holly. So this is in the Ilex genus. And the, some species of holly, they have the very thorny uh, leaves. So uh, the thorns on the leaves are supposed to represent the crown of thorns that was worn by Jesus during his crucifixion. And the red berries represent his blood. Another species that people have historically used for garlands or wreaths is English ivy. So this species needs the support of another tree. It's growing up towards the sun on top of another tree as a scaffold. So it's meant to symbolize how humans need God's support also. Uh, and then another one would be with a laurel tree. Uh, so a wreath of laurel worn on someone's head is meant to symbolize victory. And this is one that was especially used or worn by the Roman emperors or the, the winners of the Olympics. And then we also have rosemary. So I didn't know that rosemary was affiliated with Christmas, but apparently it's thought to be the Virgin Mary's favorite plant. And rosemary is also <clears throat> used because people believe that it wards off evil spirits. Uh, and it was the most common garnish that wealthy people would place on the boar's head when wealthy medieval Europeans ate their traditional Christmas dinner. And then lastly, we have yew and fir. So these evergreens were meant to symbolize everlasting life. Mm -hmm. So if you guys have any uh, comments, we can talk about them or we can just go to the next one, however you want to do it. That's really interesting, I'll say. That's really cool. So would someone like to read the history of Christmas trees? I will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> History in Europe. Germany is credited with starting the Christmas tree tradition as we now know it. By the 16th century, when sources record devout Christians bringing decorated trees into their homes, some built Christmas pyramids of wood and decorated them with evergreen evergreens and candles if wood was scarce. It is widely held belief that Martin Luther, the 16th century Protestant reformer, first added lighted candles to a tree. According to a common version of the story, walking home one winter evening, Luther was awed by the stars twinkling amidst evergreens. 
To recapture the scene for his family, he erected a tree in the main room and wired it its branches with lighted candles. Very I didn't know that Martin Luther was uh, involved in Christmas trees, you know? Hmm. I don't know if that's true, but that's kind of crazy. <laughs> Let's see. Who wants to do the USA? Oh, yeah. Let me move this picture down a little bit. This is a picture of... Uh, it's, it'll be in the show notes, but a picture of a traditional German uh, Christmas tree. So it has actual candles on fire on it. I don't know how they survived that long <laughs> doing that, but. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, in the USA, in America, Christmas trees were slow to be adopted. New England's first Puritan leaders viewed Christmas celebrations as unholy. The Pilgrim's second governor, William Bradford, wrote that he tried to stamp out pagan mockery. Yes, the pagans, of course. Uh, the observance penalizing any frivolity. For example, in 1659, the General Court of Massachusetts enacted a law making any observance of December 25th a penal offense. People were fined for hanging decorations. That stern solemn solemnity <laughs> continued until the influx of German and Irish immigrants in the 19th century undermined the Puritan legacy. Wow. You know, put Christ back in Christmas, as they say nowadays, wonder what it'd mm. be back then. <laughs> yeah. One thing that's really striking throughout this is kind of comparing the old beliefs. Like maybe the current way that we celebrate Christmas is really not that old. Yeah. I don't think so. Mm. Uh, even in the 1800s, most Americans found Christmas trees an oddity. The first records of Christmas trees being cut for display comes from the 1820s in Pennsylvania's German community. Interesting. Uh, although trees may have been a tradition there even earlier, as early as 1747, Moravian Germans in Pennsylvania had a community tree in the form of a wooden pyramid decorated with candles. But as late as the 1840s, Christmas trees were seen as pagan symbols and not accepted by most Americans. I've heard this before. My brother is a priest. So, yeah. Interesting. Julian, you want to go next? <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> so, I guess in more modern uh, U.S., um, by the 1890s, uh, Christmas ornaments were arriving from Germany, and Christmas tree popularity was on the rise around the U.S., um, it was noted that Europeans use small trees about four feet in height, while Americans like their trees to extend from floor to ceiling. The early 20th century saw Americans decorating their trees, mainly with homemade ornaments, while many German Americans continue to use apples, nuts, and marzipan cookies. String popcorn was add added to the tree's decorations after being dyed bright colors, and interlaced with berries and nuts. Electricity brought about Christmas lights, making it possible for Christmas trees to glow for days on end. Uh, with this, Christmas trees began to appear in town squares across the county country and having a Christmas tree in the home because it, it became an American tradition. Hmm. Um... So I, where are we going on? Uh, yeah, you can <laughs> skip this little bit. Basically, the article um, went on about uh, a lot of <laughs> details about Christmas trees in other countries. And yeah, I will link to that article where we got a lot of this information from. 
Uh-huh. Uh, I want to ask a question for everybody though. Yeah. Yeah. Of this topic with Christmas trees, cutting them down, displaying them. I find it odd myself because every year I remember being in Oregon, always going to a U-cut farm where we cut them ourselves because they grow mm-hmm. so big there. Yeah. For all of you, is it weird not to have a plastic tree or do you cut your own? Um, I've never had like a live cut Christmas tree, actually. <gasps> yeah. Me neither. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. What about you, what Kelly? About you, Kelly? Um, growing up, I had a plastic, but then uh, got older, we got uh, a cut Christmas tree. We don't cut it ourselves, of course, because there's no trees here to cut. Um, but they shed a lot, so mm. kind of stopped with that because it just got really messy. Uh, you know what I was kind of curious about? Um, maybe I missed it when you guys were reading, but why is a Christmas tree seen as pagan? Like where they they weren't worshiping the tree, so I don't understand that part. A yeah, little bit I, that I've been told on that from my brother being a priest was that the lights symbolized the solstice and that enactment of uh, raising a god and having the light shine as a festivities and the parties and things forever to party throughout the night and be pagans and whatever that means. The little gist that I took from him because my brain shut off after hearing that from him I was like, okay, we're done. <laughs> yeah, so I've heard of Martin Luther being the one that started Christmas trees because he saw the stars through a tree when he was walking. He thought it was pretty. Hmm. Um, yeah, I never heard of it as pagan. It could also be something related to the types of trees that were involved. And um, so like maybe since it's the same types of trees that they use for their wreaths, uh, to some extent, like a fir tree being very oh. common and these evergreens that have certain symbolism. Um, so maybe that's part of it. Can't say for sure. Okay. So just typed into Google, why were Christmas trees seen as pagan? It says here, um, evergreens were also used as a sign of eternal life by early Christians in catacombs under Rome. But until the mid 19th century, Christians viewed the Christmas tree as a foreign pagan custom. Pagans would bring fir trees into their homes at Yuletide because it represented everlasting life and fertility. But bam. I think a lot of the Christian traditions, they maybe willingly or unwillingly or were forced to by the European population kind of adopted from the pagan traditions. Um, Touchy situation these are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kelly, do you want to do the the section on christmas tree stats so this is live christmas tree stats apparently there's a association for real christmas trees and they put this out okay christmas tree stats uh 25 to 30 million christmas trees are sold annually in the u.s the u.s christmas tree industry employs over a hundred thousand people there are 350 million christmas trees growing in the u.s Christmas trees take four to 15 years to grow to size, but average out at seven years. 295,000 acres are dedicated to growing Christmas trees in the U.S. Do you think most of that's an organ? Yep. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, you guys have never cut a tree down? Oh, well, that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) The U.S. Christmas market is worth 380 million 
well, there it is. Oregon is the number one Christmas tree growing state in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You, you know, some interesting fact on that, though, a majority of the trees are actually shipped to other places. And a lot of people aren't able to cut them down in Oregon because they're privately owned. Oh. Yeah. Some of those Christmas trees are actually, I know for a fact, shipped to the Virgin Islands because my dad lives there and they get real Christmas trees imported every year. <laughs> but they don't have the same types, so they don't. But apparently all 50 states grow live Christmas trees, but maybe a little bit different species based on where you are. You guys ever hear of like um, people bringing in a Christmas tree they cut and there's like an animal or bugs or something in the tree? Yeah. And then they hatch and then they're all over the place. Is that a real thing that happens? I know that that wasn't that. uh, What's that movie called? Uh, Christmas. uh, Christmas. No. It's like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Vacation, like yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just bought the movie the other day again. I, I just made um, Claire watch it because you'd never seen it before. Yeah, no, it's real. Funny story. I was When I was living in Portland, went to Portland Nursery, and they had their Christmas stuff up, and I was just looking at their huge, vast display of, like, the bonsai trees they have there are pretty nice, actually, to start out with. Some are more expensive than others. But I walked by this Christmas tree on display, and I saw a dead squirrel in it. And I was like, what the heck? Is that real? So I yeah. went to the person that was working on the ground or um, that 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 area. I was like, um, this might be a weird question. Probably that you'll ever hear today or maybe this whole season. She's like, okay. I'm like, do you have a dead squirrel on purpose in your tree? She's like, what? I was like, there's a dead squirrel in your tree. <laughs> She's like, oh, my God. Oh Did my you God. Say this was at like a bonsai display or something? No, this was at a Portland nursery in a very large uh, uh, landscape nursery, but they have bonsai trees there, nice established mm-hmm. ones for sale. And they had them, you know, you know, nurseries will have like Christmas trees around the whole lot just to mm-hmm. show off like decorations. But there was a physically dead squirrel in this tree. And the girl, the person's face. She's just like her eyes like bulged out of her head. It looked like she's like, oh, my God, I got to take care of that right now. (laughs) And I've never forgot that ever. It was just like, what an interesting holiday season you must have for yourself. (laughs) I guess it does happen. It does. Uh, I've heard it happening when people go to the mountains and cut them out there um, in that way. Yeah, I do know back when I lived in Washington, some of the national forests, when I was looking for transplant permits, they would also have Christmas tree permits. So as a tax-paying citizen, you are entitled for certain national forests and go to the ranger office, get a Christmas tree permit. You can go out and cut down a tree of a certain size and take it home. (laughs) But it's like certain times of year that they'll allow you to do that. You know, They do that in Lake Tahoe here. Mm -hmm. Never been to Lake yeah. Tahoe. Is there any digging out there, like Yam- like Yamador or anything? Uh, I think it's called the Inyo Valley. It seems easy to get a permit. Like uh, I applied for one, it wasn't that hard. I, mm. I haven't gone out there to scout out a place. The advice I got from somebody that collects here, his name is Tom Bond. Mm. He said, find a place, and then that way you're aware of where to go and wh- where to dig but the altitude there is like eight thousand, nine thousand feet so i don't a lot of people tell me they're not going to survive down here mm-hmm. um and also a lot of them grow in like cracks of rocks so yeah. i mean julian could probably rock climb up there and get it but um <laughs> it might be hard to pull out of there <laughs> lift the rocks up by his strong hands like yeah, I'm yeah. <laughs> yeah. definitely yeah if it's, if it's growing in cracks and you pull out trees like that 
Um, unless you have like an attack root ball, right? It'll usually just kill the tree. So mm. de definitely not recommended. <laughs> yeah, do y'all do y'all get to do much collecting out there? Um, I mean, in SoCal, I mean, of course, before there used to be a lot in the Mojave Desert. Yeah, but like those original collecting grounds, which were private land, um, either it's been like over collected because this is like sixty years of collecting, right? Um, and so continuous collecting for decades, yeah. and so there is definitely over collecting. Um, so some of the private lands that like the old timers would go on is no longer accessible for bonsai people. Mm -hmm. But you can get permits sometimes from a BLM, a Bureau of Land Management. Um, but generally the forest service doesn't like, especially in our local like mountain ranges, cause there's so many people here, they, they usually will not give you a permit, right. To go dig trees. And so it's kind of hit or miss depending on the area, um, that it's, I would say it's difficult uh, to get permits, right. But I hear people going to kind of what, uh, where Kelly was saying also like the white mountains, like if you guys ever went to the Bristlecone Pine Forest, uh, but say like on route to there, you can get um, permits in that area. There's like Utah junipers, uh, pinyon pines. Um, so there's some locations, but probably the best is if you have a friend or somebody with private land access, and then you can find maybe some nice stuff. But I would say easily accessible regions has been like over collected by yeah. Right, like the generation of hobbyists since like the early kind of Japanese practitioners, and then I kind of hate to to say this, but like the so many trees died. Right, those yeah. early collectors had no idea what they were doing. They killed like thousands and thousands of California junipers, like really nice ones, and so it's can I think it's hard to find an accessible California juniper with great deadwood. Right, it's. I see what people dig and bring out now. And it's just like, they're big trees, but like the trunk has no character. It's just, yeah. it's just a big tree. And at that point I was like, you should just leave it in nature. Yeah. Right? Don't mess with it. Yeah. Chase Rosé, he, he, you know, the name Chase Rosé. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he told myself and Ryan multiple mm -hmm. times stories of going out digging in Jawbone Canyon and stuff. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, I really hope some of those trees are still alive. I was like, me too. Yeah, me too. yeah. <laughs> Have you gotten to work on any of those trees yourself as far as like uh, the historical lessons? Um, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of old trees in SoCal. And and actually last year, I was very lucky. I was able to buy some um, from those kind of um, areas. So I didn't collect it, right? Somebody already dug it out like 30 years ago. Mm. But I bought... Um, from this like older Japanese hobbies, right? He's like in his nineties and uh -huh. basically these trees are all like dying. Um, and, but it was cheap enough that I was like, well, I think I probably can get it like alive again. <laughs> and, um, so I kind of took a risk on that. And that, so I got some like nice old material. And so, so there are like good trees floating around but sometimes i look through those old we we have like california bonsai society one of these old bonsai clubs in our area <laughs> and they used to run i think the last one was quite a while ago like i don't know 2005 or 2007 they used to have like an annual show and 
And sometimes it was pretty good. And, and I looked at these old magazines and books and the oldest one I have for those, that club shows from like 1967 or something. And they used to print all the a magazine every year. And there were some really good junipers that I have no idea what happened to them. They just like disappeared. <laughs> like probably like realistically, a lot of those just died. Um, hmm. But there is, there's definitely some good trees floating around that's just disappeared into oblivion. And and so who knows, some of them are alive, some aren't. Yeah. Yeah. We're kind of lucky nowadays we have all these experienced people we can go ask like, Oh, how do you get a California Mm -hmm. juniper to dig and -hmm. survive? Yeah. Or like, how do you get a permit for this certain spot? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Well, Kelly, does Mel have any anything like that in his collection, or does he know people that you've been able to see with their stuff? Um, so so Mel has the ones he's dug out, and I think he's sold a few. Hmm. Um, so I think he has pretty good luck. And what Julian was saying, it was over dug, and Mel told me about this. Like, you go on a dig, you're going out there to the desert, and everyone's coming back with trees, and you're 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 you know you're walking through the desert. It's kind of hard to. I guess yeah. some areas are kind of hard to get through and you're carrying all your equipment and he goes, you know, you're looking for a good tree, but when it gets closer to the end, you're just going to take anything. Cause you had, you made, you had, you took the trouble to get out there. So you're just going to take anything, like mm-hmm. anything easy to dig up, even if it's not good, mm-hmm. just because you're already out there. Um, so yeah, he was saying it's hard to get stuff now. And like Julian was saying, any private lands, like, um, anyone that had relationships with those people are gone and those private owners that allowed it, they're probably gone too. Like they're, they passed off, uh, off the scene. So, and I think even Ted Matson said, it's hard to, to get Californians now. Um, I don't even think you can get, uh, permits down here, like in the 4,000 or below elevation, just from what I'm hearing. I mean, you can try to ask, but I don't think it's going to yeah, happen. It's pretty, it's pretty hard. And also in, in California, I mean, we've been having such bad fire seasons for a while that I think in, in 2016, 2017, we had a fire called like the Bobcat Fire. And it was both the whole like northern range of the Angeles Crest Forest, which is the high desert side. And then also some parts on the south facing range, just like vast, vast acres, just like totally burned down. And that's like the where the California Juniper Woodland Range is. And so it's actually like pretty hard to get fresh, like a new collected because there's there's a lot of them out there, right? You go to the Mojave Desert, just everywhere. But the ones that grow in just like open flat terrain, it's just like a bush, yeah. right? Like a shrub. They're not but struggling, those, <laughs> right? But those like truly ancient ones that have good character, um, definitely a little bit over collected, right? Like say sixty years of collecting in the same relative region, and we have like all the peep hobbyists and then living in the same area. It's there, there are some like I guess ethics where it can be overdone, and um, and right. So yeah, hard, hard to get. <laughs> and it's so also listen. like one of the <laughs> densest areas in terms of bonsai artists, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So listener, <laughs> don't go digging if you can't know the horticulture and right. health practices. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. Or don't don't go killing go like old trees, right? It's. I mean, if, if you think about it, and and something I I hate when like people are like digging Yamadori and they're like like oh it's because I love nature so much like 
I can accept that, like, because I have some Yamadori that it's like for selfish reasons, like it's like the age that's non-reproducible in your lifespan. Yeah. And and so that's something really to consider, just the sheer time to make something like so beautiful and like really magnificent. And so definitely we should like respect that because you, we can't produce it in our own life. And if you just totally like obliterate that, right, it's, it's just, you'll, you'll never see it. Right. Just the time scale is just so immense. And so should did you, like, did you Julian get to work on any um, Yamadori when you were in Japan that were like collected before the no enactment fresh. of no more digging? Well, of course uh, there's a lot of trees out there that started as Yamadori, like nice mm. bonsai. Um, but right. You don't see fresh, not that much fresh, some like red pines. Um, you'll still see some of those. That's like more fresh Yamadori, uh, really almost no junipers. Occasionally you'll see people say they get like junipers from like Northern Japan that they got out of who knows is private land or some other region. And, but as a whole, you're not really seeing like fresh raw Yamadori enter the scene. Mm. And at least for the nursery I was at, right, uh, Kokoen, uh, we're not getting that. I mean, some of the material did start off as Yamadori, but it's been in bonsai cultivation for many decades. And right. so you're not getting like that tree that was within the last 10 years, right, dug out. And then it's being cultivated as bonsai. Um, because right in Japan, they say like no more wild Itoigawa, right? It's been overdug <laughs> from the mountains, which I totally believe that because like when when there's i guess so much financial incentive and say you're like a poor farmer or whatever in japan like 150 years ago and like some guys like i'm gonna give you 200k for this tree you're mm -hmm. like shit like why am i like, <laughs> like hell guy, yeah. right like, I'll put my job like, today. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna like dig out this tree and like and so you can see it's just like people like can't resist and, and honey then, i'm and, home <laughs> yeah right and so it just gets totally abused as a resource mm. um and That's i guess hard. that kind of situation yeah. happens a lot right so i mean similarly to california too like you're saying you can't get permits anymore because it's over collecting it's just like yeah, yeah. it's a hard thing <laughs> yeah. i mean in ohio we can't get permits to go collect in the um land here either right at the, a the public time. land yeah yeah and so yeah. we have to utilize people that we make networking with that have mm -hmm. private land and even then yeah. it's still limited because yeah. it's more uh deciduous based right and yeah. very long very tall you know mm -hmm. ryan and i are doing an experiment right now about digging seasonally and drum mm -hmm. shopping and stuff and yeah i i remember i was listening to the podcast with uh, dan and steve varlin um mm -hmm. where they're talking about their collecting experience and how they're collecting basically 100 percent off private land Mm -hmm. right like forest service did not give them the okay and approval to dig trees so it's all just getting permission from like ranchers and private landowners and yeah i guess it's not not necessarily that easy to find trees um, yeah yeah it's like it a pays whole to be ordeal. good at networking even yeah. in bonsai yeah randy knight yeah. told me that too he's like yeah i don't do public land anymore it's too much of a hassle they yeah. they want too much money i was like ah. <laughs> okay uh yeah Nice Yamadori tangent. I'm always down for that. Let's reel it back in. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes teacher. Last, yes, teacher last on uh, <laughs> trees. So the type of tree varies widely by region. 
I was really looking for some statistics on like what is the most common Christmas tree people use in the U.S. Couldn't find anything like that. Um, I did find a couple different sources that claim like these are some of the most common trees, but they didn't have any real stats behind it. Yeah. Um, so just speaking, speaking broadly, many conifer trees, including pines, firs, spruce, and juniper, maybe they are the most common in the northern U.S. for Christmas trees. I mean, you go southern, you're going to hit a lot of the pine plantations. So that's a lot, you know, you got your pines that grow in Florida specifically. And then you have your other pines that grow maybe in Alabama. It might be a little different. So mm -hmm. that makes sense down there. I don't know. But then you got your plastic trees too. So there's a little different species. Yeah. Nowadays, <laughs> I wonder if plastic trees are more common than than the live ones. Just go to Costco. <laughs> yep. And they're probably cheaper over time. But there is that stat that you have to use your plastic tree for 20 years for it to be more uh, like less carbon intensive in terms of like less polluting than chopping down an existing christmas like tree from a christmas that. tree farm yeah yeah so keep that in mind if you got one of those just keep <laughs> using it as long as yeah. you can mm. um okay so who wants to read the history of the yule log this one's a little bit shorter kelly <laughs> excuse me sorry uh, kelly no. okay. <laughs> no. okay so okay. the custom of the the custom of burning the Yule log goes back to and before medieval times. Although the first recorded burning of a Christmas log was in poetry in 1648, the term Yule log is first documented in 1686. It was it has originally been a Nordic tradition as Yule is the name of the old winter solstice festivals in Scandinavia and Germany. Yule logs could have started out an entire tree or very large log that was carefully chosen and brought into the house with great ceremony. The largest end of the log would be placed in the fire hearth while the rest of the tree stuck out into the room. The log would be lit from the remains of the previous year's log, which had been carefully stored away and slowly fed, oh, slowly fed into the fire through the 12 days of Christmas. A smaller log might have been lit each evening through the 12 days of Christmas. It was considered important that the relighting process was carried out by someone with clean hands. Nowadays, of course, most people have central heating, so it is a very so it is very difficult to burn a tree. The ashes of yule logs were meant to be a very good be very good for plants, but if you throw the ashes out on Christmas day, it was supposedly very unlucky. Yeah, so now you can just watch a Yule log burn on Netflix. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is one of those uh, Christmas terms where it's just like, I just heard of it in songs and never put any thought into what the heck that was. <laughs> I, I'm, there, I'm with you there. Yep. And I tried to find uh, maybe a picture or a drawing of someone or the Yule log with the whole thing sticking out of the fireplace. I couldn't find anything like that, but that's kind of what I have in my mind now. I you don't know. should have contacted Horst. <laughs> Horst, mm -hmm. he probably has a bunch of Yule logs. <laughs> Horst? Who's Horst? Horst uh, the ceramicist? What's yeah, what's Ooh, his last like name? Hein um, Heinritzer? Yeah, I've heard Heinrich, of him. Yeah, yeah, he's super into Nordic. He's, well, he is Nordic, so yeah. I see. So the species used traditionally for Yule log, these are mostly uh, species in... The UK, I think. Maybe it's a wider European tradition also. 
but it says oak, birch, cherry, and ash are the main ones that they used. So I'm going to do uh, frankincense and myrrh, and I'm going to combine them because they are very similar. So frankincense and myrrh, they're both an aromatic gum resin obtained from an African tree and burnt as incense. Um, and these are the two, two of the three gifts that in the Christmas story, the wise men come to baby Jesus and they give him these gifts, which uh, I'm sure there's a whole theocratic like debate about like their significance as gifts. But I think part of the story, as it was told to me as a kid, is like, oh, these are gifts that you give to very wealthy people. So it's like symbolizing baby Jesus's importance that these people who never met him, had somehow knew to go there and gave him these very valuable gifts. Um, so in the case of frankincense, it is also called olibanum or gum olibanum. And this ancient aromatic oleo gum resin is commonly associated by the three, okay, I already kind of described that, the three precious gifts given to baby Jesus along with myrrh and gold. That was the third one. Uh, by the three wise men in the New Testament. Uh, in Islam, frankincense resin has been widely used also in mosques, ceremonies, spiritual gatherings, and herbal preparations. This aromatic treasure has been a popular incense in the Arabian Peninsula as part of daily ritual to perfume clothes and indoor space and to evoke a positive mood during gatherings and other social activities. Has anybody ever been in a Catholic service where they're doing the swinging of the chain and burning the incense like that? Is that? I think uh, I know that. it's. I think it's frankincense. I can't remember which one it is, but I know I was in one. And my brother was doing it. It's a trip. It's so, so much smoke. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so much of that it smells like you come out of it and you're just like i smell everything that smells the same <laughs> this is another uh set of things where it's like i've heard about it i had no idea ever since i was a kid what the heck these things were um even incense i had no idea like what is incense actually made out of you know but interesting to know so the species of trees that make frankincense in this case so frankincense is from the genus Boswellia, and those trees are native to Somalia. They grow on rocky slopes, and especially in the Northeast. And throughout history, Somalia has been a major exporting country for raw frankincense resin, especially Boswellia carteri, which I guess is one of the, maybe Carter is like someone that named it, but, and then there's also Boswellia freriana mm. and those make Somalia a major harvesting reg region for this globally. And the process to get this resin from the tree, uh, it's a traditional method. It's been going on for thousands of years. So first, local Somali men make incisions in small sections of the tree on the trunk or maybe the branch, and they let it ooze the milky white sap for several weeks. So a little bit like uh, maple syrup, I guess you could Think of it like that. Um, and then they let that sap harden into resin and scrape it by hand. Then they collect the resin in baskets and the Somali woman clean and separate 
leaves from the resin. And so here I have two pictures. Uh, one is kind of like a young Boswellia genus uh, member in, is, it looks like it's in a pot. Maybe it could be a bonsai. And then the other one is a wild full-sized one. Mm. And you can see how arid and rocky the environment it is. It's kind of like a desert, maybe not too dissimilar from California, maybe a little more hot. I don't know. But uh, it's interesting. It looks like this species has compound leaves. So that may come up again later when we're talking about if it has any potential for bonsai. Do okay. you guys know that the largest population of Somalian immigrants is in Minnesota and Ohio has the second largest in the, in the country? Did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah we did have uh, a good Ethiopian restaurant in town too. I love Ethiopian say. food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I just saw, I think, one of these trees in, in this family. I don't know the actual species name, like for the first time, like as bonsai. Um, Really? I did, yeah, I did work for this guy. In the and, States, um, you saw it? Yeah, this is like locals to me. Like, oh, wow. He's like a, a pretty private guy, so I won't really say too much about him. Yeah. But basically, he wanted um, to use all these, like, he has. he's basically like a plant person. He has all these weird species from, like, Mexico and Africa that he's like oh i want i want to turn these into bonsai and and he's and he and he called me he's like he's like oh you'll probably like have never worked with these trees before and i went to his place and i was like yeah like what am i looking at like all these random like plants have no idea what they were um did he have a baobab tree um i think he he does yeah oh, so so it was cool. pretty like oh, jealous. Yeah, it was pretty wild <laughs> yeah i was like i was like oh well but I was telling him that as long as the tree has some ability to lignify wood and we can control the branch habit, then you can make anything for like bonsai. So the, the yeah. bar is pretty low and we can figure out all the techniques. And, uh, but I was pretty surprised. Right? I was just like kind of like used to all these temperate species and then kind of it was like a curveball. He's like, oh, what about these? And uh, and right. And, and I don't know if it's that actual genus but it was like a frankincense where it's super aromatic foliage looks kind of similar to that and mm. so i guess they can become bonsai but it was pretty surprising was his more developed than the one in this picture um i'd say the trunks are and main branches are like way more developed oh. but it doesn't have any like development beyond that okay and, um yeah yeah, it oh, yeah. would be cool if he would be ever willing to share some of his photos of his unusual species. Oh, um, we did. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did a collaboration kind of pilot program this year. So mm -hmm. in Columbus, we have our Bonsai Society, and then there's a Central Ohio Cactus and Succulent Society. Yeah, so they're, yeah. I, don't, I really don't understand why they're so into cactus and succulents, but mm -hmm. they probably don't understand <laughs> why we're so into Bonsai. Vice yeah. versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but they have, card. you know, <laughs> a set of woody species like yeah, that's, jade, that's right. yeah, area, yeah. and yeah. these ones, um, I think they count as succulent tree species. Mm -hmm. um, so there's like so many trees I've never heard of that yeah. kind of they they're succulents. They, they can potentially, not really yeah, because that that guy was telling me the same thing where he's in like the kind of succulent and cactus space and also kind of these more less temperate they're actual tree species 
And he was telling me how like in the cactus community, it's like there's like no almost no intersection with bonsai right and he says like mm. the cactus community they're like oh yeah like jades like suck right they they <laughs> kind of poo-poo jades and like same with bonsai people right we're like oh jades aren't real trees it's mm. <laughs> right it's a succulent and, and so, so both groups kind of reject jades and but but they have some species <laughs> wow, wow. that that can <laughs> actually i think be used like I'll, I'll show you this book really quick he gave me um hmm. Now a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Bonsai Time Podcast is sponsored by The Grove Clothing Company. Hey all you Bonsai Time Podcast listeners and those people who just stumbled across this awesome podcast. Have you struggled to find the right gift for the bonsai or plant enthusiast in your life? I know I have. That is why I choose Grove Clothing Company. They have all the cool designs for you. So whether you're a bonsai amateur, master, or somewhere in between, or you're just a plant obsessed, or just starting out. There are designs for you and everyone, and I mean everyone. Use the links in the show notes to find the right shirt for you and your friends. Bonsai Time podcast listeners will receive a 10% discount. Use the code BONSAI TIME in all capitals at checkout to receive yours. Offer valid now until February 1st, 2024. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, or on their website. The Grow family can't wait to see you. Shop today at growclothingco.com myshopify.com that's growclothingco all one word dot myshopify.com or find them in our show notes now back to the bonsai time podcast you know i want to get a deep dive into jades and things like that to create in a good bonsai like refinement i just don't know how I've got some little babies. I, I didn't even know this book exists, but he he just he took he just gave it to me, and it's like it's like succulents for bonsai. I don't know. Oh, that's crazy! Like, for real? Yeah, check it out. So like, then, Julian, have you done a lot of work on? Notes. Have you done a lot of work yeah. now refining jade and stuff? Because I'm trying to get into that. I have a few. Um, you know, I only have jades. like a few, which are ones that uh, Frank Yi gave me, who's like the OG cork jade guy who like who made the variety and oh, wow, and for me they're cool. kind of like a novelty it's like hmm. and they can be nice right i don't you saw the big one pacific bonsai museum right yeah yeah that came from um florida the there's a guy i can't even remember his name it was like jim something that is an old school tropical guy in florida i think he made a lot of them and so some of the big ones especially when they get old enough they look pretty cool um the small ones is just kind of i mean they're fun but you have to say it's not a tree right <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a really it's tall really, succulent yeah right it's just <laughs> in the end it still doesn't have that same presence of a tree mm. and 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 but I, i'm willing to bet that like there's like a lot of like species that's just totally untouched and like and like we don't even consider and use but but potentially can be quite good for bonsai because something like that, that guy I was working for is telling me was tell, he was saying like, oh, these species are like incredibly hardy where 
because their environment is extremely like stressful and the mm. intervals of water can be pretty extreme. It's mm. just an opportunistic grower. And so he's telling me, he's like, he's like, yeah, I bought this plant from Mexico and I, I didn't, I didn't pot it for like a year, just sat with its roots, like on the ground. And then I finally decided to pot it and it started to grow. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, sounds so stupid. And, um, and, but, but some of them looks less like succulent, right? It looks like an actual, yeah. It looks like looks like an actual tree. The only difference it's it's like there's just more water. It's not quite fleshy like a cactus or a jade, but definitely they have a ton of water they store in them. And, and so I think there's potential can be some good trees out there. Yeah. Yeah, I might get a little bit of flack for this, but I now that I'm selling more trees to general <laughs> public people, I always get people coming by that's like Oh, give me one that I can't kill. You're right. So I got to have some <laughs> some succulents. Yeah, like, this is your exactly. on-ramp yeah, to bonsai. Yeah, this is one yeah. you can it's, build it's your confidence It's a good introduction, with. Jay. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, do you hear that? Keep them I think inside. it's a flat calling. <laughs> yeah. A what? So do you hear that? I think it's a flat calling. <laughs> it's coming I think you can keep them inside, right, Julian? Yeah, yeah. I mean, jades, it's like, yeah, you can grow them inside as long as they have some even in low light conditions, I mean, it just means it's going to grow slower, yeah. but at, at least it's not going to die, right? It'll, it, it'll continue to grow. I think the only issues I've heard of is like they can rot. Um, whereas yeah. say if it's like always wet and then the tree is growing so slow that it's just not moving water. And then that is a possibility, but say like, if you don't overwater, it's planted in good soil, mm -hmm. right? In the sense, it is a good uh, beginner's tree. Cause at least you can get those first concepts of bonsai, like making branches, repotting the tree, building the tree. And, um, yeah. So, so for me, they're kind of like a novelty. It looks cool. But it's not bonsai. <laughs> yeah. I think this is the first year yeah. at Nationals they had a jade tree. Do you remember yeah. that? Oh, did yeah, they? that yeah. was cool. I saw I that. I think previously mm. they didn't allow that. No, I don't know how I feel about that. It's kind of um <laughs> Yeah, I think other people yeah. think kind that of too. illegal. <laughs> like speaking of beginner yeah. trees, do you think most people should start with ficus? Um, you know that honestly it is a pretty good beginner's tree. I mean, it's very adaptable. The only hard part is, right, depending on your climate, you need winter yeah. protection, right? And so yeah. that's the one drawback. So be location dependent in terms of how easy or not that can be. Or um, Procumbens Nana. <laughs> yeah, right, which is like the universal uh, beginner's bonsai. <laughs> Everything in the ficus, sink. You can bring a yeah. ficus indoors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have one right now. Uh, yeah. Ryan's watching for me while I'm going to be going to Oregon for holiday. Yeah, so far so good, Kevin. It's pushing out new growth after the whole. Uh, <clears throat> don't uh, <throat> put boiling water by ficus. Yeah, now you got to explain the whole story because people are like, "Why the hell did you do <laughs> so, that?" So it was just a mistake, you know. Uh, we boil water from my daughter's bath, uh, so it's a little warmer because you know water heaters aren't as strong here as they are in Japan, but. Uh, I had put my ficus on the stove. Nobody was using it. And I forgot because I was studying. And then my wife proceeded to boil water. And then I remembered after about 10 to 15 minutes of the water starting to boil and the steam coming up. And I looked and the, the leaves were just God, brown, black, dead. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Lord. Okay, this is interesting. And, you know, we, I didn't get mad because I knew it 
pushback. I was just like, this is a learning experience. And then talking to Dave Clutchin about it, he's like, dude, those things, it'll take an army to kill it. I was like, okay. And then Brian's, like I said, watching it for me because he's got a good indoor setup with his nursery stuff. And uh, uh, thank you, Ryan. <laughs> I got you. So yeah, so I got listener, limited. don't boil water space, next to any yeah. tree you have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the last uh, point with, I showed you the frankincense trees. The last little point on myrrh, it's very much overlapping. I think both of these are in the same family. But myrrh comes from the genus Camiphora, and these trees are native to arid areas of Ethiopia and also Somalia. Um, so here I have a couple pictures of the Camiphora plants, one kind of being like a small one, maybe potential bone slide material, um, and then the full-size one. And then when I was looking this up on Google Images, I did see, I don't know if it's different species or different time of year, but there's some that are more skeleton-like. And what I suspect it could be, since it is a succulent, maybe it's like in the times where it has lots of water, then the leaves come out. And then the rest of the time, maybe it loses the leaves. There is a lot of desert plants that have that ability. Yeah. Um, yeah, this this was the one I saw, this um the myrrh. Okay. <laughs> it looked it looks like this photo, like that this kind of bark character. I think mm -hmm. it's maybe it's like some related species. Um is it kind of like platy bark or is it just it's like really very chunky? flaky. Like mm. I mean, but the bark, especially the older parts, it has enough, I guess, texture. It, it still looks like bark right you won't mm. you wouldn't know it's i guess succulent-ish until you cut off a branch it mm. seems very like woody so but it's kind of interesting yeah i would have would have never considered these for bonsai before until, until i just saw them recently you know like you said earlier there's so many species untapped that yeah. have so much availability i think because yeah that's like crazy where say it's just I think what Ryan was saying was right, where say in, in its natural environment, there's no water for a long time, and it'll just drop all the leaves and just stores everything in the trunk. And then say for that one month or whatever, it gets water, grows everything out, photosynthesize as much as possible, and then it just, whatever, everything dies off again until the next cycle. So I think those trees just must be adapted to like that kind of condition. Hmm. It's all alien nonsense as far as i'm concerned all this <laughs> desert mumbo jumbo yeah don't yeah, know how it works yeah. well, it'd be interesting to talk to um hugo zamora because he lives in mexico uh -huh. oh That's yeah right. yeah you know yeah. and that would be a really interesting conversation because he has his own school down there and stuff mm -hmm. and he studied he's with kobayashi. working with like native species mm -hmm. yeah and i mean he studied with kobayashi in japan so i'm like how does that mm -hmm. translate to right that's completely yeah. different you know it's like yeah. what yeah. yeah so uh we're kind of pushing up on time here do you guys have time to do one more and then do our draft pick and discussion of species or if you want we can save this last one for next year um what is the next one Let's see. mistletoe mistletoe it's not super invasive but i thought this one had one of the most interesting <laughs> super invasive it's yeah. bad for you <laughs> um <laughs> I think we can like skip this for now because it's not like a tree per se. That's fair. And then I'll just save like... this one for next year. Yeah. And, Don't use uh... mistletoe. It'll spread everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll save that one for next year. Keep note, listener. If you're listening one year in the future, 
go straight to the next episode to continue. Time log. The, the next Christmas episode <laughs> to continue. Sounds like we're on a spaceship. Time log, yeah. Captain. Yeah, timelines are weird. Okay. Okay. So let me just remove this one from the list. Okay. So now we're going to do our Christmassy tree species draft for, for bonsai. So here we will go in a round robin style draft pick to explain and discuss the merits of each species for bonsai. Pick, and this is instructions for you all, pick as though your team, the species that you choose, is the only set of species you can use for bonsai. What, think about what could you give up and what can't you go without among these options. And at the end, you'll have to defend why your team is the best set of species for your enjoyment of bonsai. So Julian, okay. the options are holly, English ivy, yew, fir, spruce, pine, juniper, laurel, rosemary, and I'm gonna bundle up myrrh and frankincense again since they're kind of overlapping. Yeah, yeah. And then oak, birch, cherry, and ash. So for now, you can just explain. You maybe it will be quickest if we just explain. Um, your pick so like, like just pick one um, yeah just pick one and we'll go one okay. at a time and then at the end you can explain why you picked the ones that you picked how's that uh sure yeah um we'll pick oak then okay mm, oak's choice. off the board good choice okay kelly you're up next uh, juniper oh, that's a good pick <laughs> Oh, Kevin? I should have given that to Kevin since his no, daughter. Okay. I have my own juniper every day. It's cool. <laughs> no more junipers for Kevin. <laughs> oh, man. Does that say you fur or you comma fur? Oh, you comma fur. Two okay, sorry. Words. My screen's really small. I have uh, my, my computer for school on this one. Let's see. Um, I'm going to thank you, Ryan. My old man eyes I have, I guess. Um, I'm going to say fur. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go with you then. Me? Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, back to Julian. I'll do a pine. Oh, fuck. I forgot pine yeah. over there. <laughs> I should have done that one. one. Yeah. Uh, rosemary? Duh. <laughs> okay, you got that good ESPN. No, um, or yes, whatever you call it, ESP. Uh, let's go with. Let's go with cherry. I feel like I'm picking like for a dodgeball team or something. <laughs> you can dodge, <laughs> dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. There you go. <laughs> hmm. Ooh. Oh, oh, spruce is there. I don't have any spruces. Maybe I'll go with birch. A lot of birch in Ohio grow wild. Mm -hmm. um, I'll take spruce. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. How did birch do in California? Uh, I think not yeah. so well. Yeah, yeah. I figured. Yeah. Like so, so. <laughs> There's a lot of river birch out here that grow near streams and stuff. Um, English ivy. Okay, Kevin. Oh wait, let me delete this off the board. Uh, let's see. Let's do ash. R.I.P. Ash. Mm-hmm. I'll go with holly. 
Now, uh, yeah, I, you guys can have one extra one on your team if you want. <laughs> no. I, I guess I'll just talk about the myrrh. I just saw one for the first time. Okay. I'll give it's... you myrrh and frankincense, Julian. Yeah. Oop. I'll say, Julian, that is a pretty cool thing to say that you can now continuously yeah. work on and build your resume with, right? It's like, so anybody got myrrh? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind like... of random, but yeah, something different. It, you know, it's all helpful. Yeah. So okay. myrrh being, like we said, growing in like high arid mm-hmm. geographic regions, right? So you could do it so, pretty yeah. well in like New Mexico and whatnot over there. Yeah. Like my, my thought, because basically what we were talking earlier about uh, jades uh, with uh, Ryan and we're like, actually, especially over COVID, I think a lot of people got into bonsai and it's mm. easy in a sense to introduce it to people. I mean, people like the concept and idea of it. It's like pretty interesting. And but right. The moment like their first tree dies, it's like, it's all over. Right. They're like, yeah. like, fuck, Hey, bonsai, like screw this thing. Right? <laughs> My life it just sucks. happens, <laughs> happens like, so, so say for example, um, the, probably the largest bonsai club in the U S right now, is san diego bonsai club and then i do a lot of work in san diego for their members and so they're like topping off the year at like 630 members right it's it's mm-hmm. ginormous wow. for a bonsai club uh, so it's always san diego and portland is always the two biggest yeah. bonsai clubs in the u.s mm-hmm. and and but the thing is they start the year and this happens every single year at like two to three hundred members and then if it inflates to 600 at the end of the year and it resets then you keep repeating that cycle so the retention rate is like abysmal right it's like under Mm. 10% where people like the idea and they get into it and then once they realize it's like oh I have to keep it alive Mm. like and how do I grow a branch and then the learning curve is so steep and people are just like oh it's like not meant for me I'm not going to do it and they never make make it past that initial barrier to find like the joy and interest in it Mm. and so I'm like thinking a lot recently like are there like bulletproof species that's super hardy right and it's not just gonna it's gonna tolerate a lot of stress basically but at least it's capable of say right building branches this whole concept of developing age and bonsai so how do you cultivate something for a long time so it's Mm -hmm. not like just the plant is old but it's old as bonsai right that's kind of valuable in this kind of art craft um and i feel if you can accomplish that then it doesn't matter what you're working with. People can get the feeling and essence of bonsai with any species that can accomplish that. And so I'm, I'm, so it's kind of interesting the sense this guy I'm working with, where I'm, I'm, I want to be like hopeful that like these species that is just dry for like twelve, <laughs> and it can just it can just grow at any time, right? It's just mm. opportunistic. I was like, that's like crazy, like. You can go on vacation and just not water your tree. And you're just like, you're, like, you're just going to get water whenever <laughs> I give it to you, right? Like you just suck it up. And 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 I feel like if you can have a species like that, right? And you start normalizing the technique and exposure, then mm. it's a great like intermediate to expose people to bonsai. And then they can think about, okay, now I want to delve into more temperate varieties or other species, or maybe they stay very focused in that area. Um, With a warning label, water more often. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> so so there's there's potential in that sense right mm. and and so i don't know yeah that's why i've been like thinking about i guess for species like the whatever the myrrh and frankincense um but they're they're very much like kind of like baobab looking trees right yeah. these kind of super giant like muscular trunks but it develops bark character and the branches can bifurcate and and so i feel they can be like potentially pretty cool like hmm. like um it's, it's possible to develop them as bonsai so ryan maybe we should start utilizing those for the students at ohio state bonsai club yeah if i can <laughs> get my hands on a cutting or a seed or something i'll yeah. start some mother plants and we can yeah. we can try the dorm rooms aren't, thing, aren't sufficient for growing like <laughs> how stuff like that handles cold i have no idea mm. like um if their environments maybe those desert environments get pretty cold and who knows mm. Um, or freezing right has all that yeah. water in the trunk what happens when you get like well well below freezing <laughs> this is just yeah. the problem, the problem we're running into is like the students live in dorm rooms with circulated air mm-hmm. and so it's like oh get a ficus or you know a jade and I'm like well I'm like yeah, it's hard yeah, like yeah. that's it's a big struggle bus mm, yeah it's not so yeah it's not so simple yeah from what i heard from the cactus people in columbus a lot mm-hmm. of them, um, there are a couple cold hardy cacti that like prickly pear can mm. be planted outside here. But a lot of them have outdoor plants, but they have some way to make sure that it gets very dry. Like it's in a rock garden and maybe they cover it. So it's not really getting a lot of rain or snow on it. And apparently if they're dry, they can handle the cold temperatures a lot better than if they're very full of water or whatever it may be. So well, that makes sense, like stomato opening and whatnot, too. Mm-hmm. Decreasing. So then are they zero escaping with it? Just like you would do in like Arizona? I'm yeah. not sure exactly. They may some people do that. They kind of have a smattering of people, some people with indoor growing, some people with some kind of like a a raised bed that you can put a little window on it or something, or <laughs> move the plants in and out. Um so they they do the bonsai shuffle a little bit in their own way too, sometimes. But so uh Julian, your defense of myrrh and frankincense kind of gets us into our next. Um, part which is you have to defend your picks why is your team the best team for bonsai oh, okay am i am i oh, starting yeah, yeah. Okay. so you you kind of explained myrrh and frankincense already but yeah. what about like why did you pick oak and pine and spruce out of all of those options Let's see so i guess oak is itself is so many oak species both uh, deciduous and evergreen um, but I guess one aspect of bonsai, let's say we're trying to like balance this roster and, and before I was saying merge, suppose, supposedly, I don't even really know. Right. But can be some very hardy tree that can create this individual, say individual character for bonsai. Right. And you still get this experience of developing and aging the material over time. Um, and so that in itself is pretty good, but then the downside say with that species is you don't get seasonality, right. And that reflects the climate it grows in. It's not a very temperate climate and, and bonsai has that ability in both in the long and short-term scale to kind of showcase, uh, time, right. You're encapsulating this progression of time, right. It's very, this like transient, ever-changing thing. And so seasonality in a tree kind of matters in that sense, right? Because it's an expression of the time of year and passage of time. And so say oak will for a deciduous oak, right? That would be possible, right? You can get the spring, summer, fall, winter months. 
Um, and generally, oaks tend to be fairly robust, and so they'll offer some uh, good vigor and interesting character and seasonality of the year. I guess that really applies to any deciduous, temperate deciduous species, right? And so maybe that's not super specific to oak. Um, but in general, I like them, especially in California, we have a lot of native varieties that are uh, very hardy and they develop well for bonsai. Um, pine is pretty universal, right? There's always some kind of pine species anywhere you go. So it's right recognizable and well appreciated for bonsai. And, and pines is kind of unique in that we can think of its cluster of needles, right, as a pre-made building block of the design, right? You're looking how to position and develop the needles and the branches to frame your design in silhouette. And so you can create these very kind of clean and interesting shapes. Um, and so it offers another kind of aesthetic, I guess, and, and it's adaptable as a species in that there's many different varieties of pines. Um, spruce is like has like the feeling of a conifer but i guess depends on the tree but can be more like softer right more elegant in terms of the foliage quality say compared to a pine tends to be smaller um and so maybe that uh then refinement ability right is maybe greater than a pine in terms of how much branching can you build and the sizes of the branch tip to then evoke the greater scale of a, of a bigger tree, right? If you have the ability to make smaller branches. And so spruce, I think is pretty effective in that regard. And this seems to be pretty abundant and adaptable as a species. There's many native and non-native varieties that are suitable for bonsai. And so I guess I kind of pick species that I really like working with, um, but it's just adaptable as a whole. And the Mersh is kind of like this random thing that maybe has potential, but <laughs> you have to look card. into that. Yeah. So who knows? Um, yeah. Okay. Thanks, Julian. Kelly, do you want to go next explaining your team and why it's the best? Um, I think everything, everyone on my, every tree on my team, uh, you can get pretty much anywhere in the country. Uh, I know junipers are available in warm and cold climates, um, and there's different varieties of them. Uh, I tend to think when people, even non-bonsai people, think of bonsai, um, they think of a juniper, at least a silhouette of a juniper. I think that's the tendency. Um, and they're flexible. Uh, rosemary, I think they're pretty pest hardy, like not too many pests would, um, like spider mites and stuff. I don't think they like rosemary, the smell of it. English ivy, I just picked it because I, I just figured it could live here and I don't know what the other, like the ones on Kevin and Ryan's teams, I don't know like what kind of trees those are. I mean, I I think I know what a, I know what a birch is. I don't know what ash is. Um, so I just picked English ivy just because I knew it would live in California. Uh, Laurel, I think he just put that on my team. But I looked it up on Google. It kind of <laughs> looks like a tropical because uh, Weigert sells it. And it looks pretty, so I probably could live here too. But I would just, I just would say juniper, rosemary, English ivy. They're just easily accessible to everybody. Mm -hmm. 
Rosemary is kind of an interesting one. So like in thinking about how to get more people in the on-ramp to bonsai, I was like, how can we make it more than just uh, art, you know? So rosemary could be good because then it's like, oh, it's food also, you know? Um, That's a nice part too. Mm -hmm. Okay, Kevin. Thank you, Kelly. Kevin, would you like to explain why your tree or tree team is the best? You and I kind of got the short end of the stick because we're, we're one tree less, but that's okay. You know, I got to say, you know, I'm pushing finals up and it feels like I'm back in school, <laughs> but I enjoy it because we're talking about plants and trees and bonsai. But it's funny because I'm known in my campus as the bonsai guy. And I'm like, I'll take it. I'll take it. I just need a shirt that says the bonsai guy, you know, um, fur, cherry and ash. So fur, I like furs a lot because I grew up around the Douglas fir trees in Oregon. That's my favorite tree. One of them. Uh, that's what I think of when I think of like my first tree when I was a kid, just sitting on the coast range, camping and fishing and, you know, just all those leggy tall trees, you know, in the mountains. Uh, cherry. I like flowering cherry. Um, like Yoshino cherry is one of my favorites. The bummer with them is that they don't last very long, especially in landscape. Side note, listener, did you know that in Japan, they change out the uh, cherry trees at the emperor's palace when they're starting to die with brand new ones that they've cultivated year round <laughs> because they they uh, allocate them to be grown that way. I think the same thing is similar to that of the University of Washington campus because uh, similar to a willow when they start, you know, dying and getting nasty, they just fall over. So it could be a public uh, problem, but I've yet to see many, cherry uh my case yoshino cherry uh bonsai uh in america i mean there's probably a lot in backyards that we don't see because you know people don't want to show them um but i'm trying to air layer my yoshino cherry that i bought from home depot that was a grafted really tall one so i'm going to see how it took next year it started pushing some really good roots but we'll figure out what's going on um as far as ash i've never seen an ash tree because they're gone uh, I've learned a lot about ash trees now in my, my schooling with horticulture. My advisor studied the emerald ash borer for her PhD dissertation. So I've learned a lot more than I ever thought I'd need to know, but, um, they're beautiful trees. You know, the green ash and a white ash are very limited, but, um, it'd be cool to see some ash trees that maybe are in Asia, just different cultivars and things. Um, I, Pretty sure they're trying to have talks about doing genetically modified ash similar to the American chestnut in regards of having more uh, resistance. Um, but also a cherry, going back to cherry, you can do a lot of barbecuing with cherry wood and do a lot of smoking that way too. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, those are why I chose mine. I think there needs to be more utilization of not obscure cultivars or obscure genuses, but similar to myrrh or frankincense. It's like, oh, that. Yeah, that's also a tree. With ash, I think I mean, it's a weird common name. So I don't know exactly what is the group of genuses that fall into ash. But mm. I think that there's one type, one genus, maybe it's the sorbus genus. Um, someone can correct me if I'm remembering wrong. But there's like the, em the ashes that are attacked by emerald ash borers. So it's like the... Um, white and the green ashes and there's even a blue ash and pennsylvania ash all these different ones those are all one set of related ones they have a pinnate compound leaf so it's like little leaflets 
um, or they do have leaflets attached to one central petiole. And then yeah, the other one I was thinking of, the possibly sorbus genus, those ones have also a compound leaf, but the leaflets are smaller. So that could be potentially um, easier to make into a bonsai type of look. So ash trees also belong to the Oleaceae family, which is the olive family. Oh, okay. So there's That's good some congruence oh, there. Yeah, didn't know that. <laughs> I will say, anybody listening, it's really good to know the families because it helps you know like magnolids, magnolias and things in that way. There's so many different things that help with how to understand the growth rate and other congruent things within how to possibly have better horticulture outcome with your trees. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's my little shtick. <laughs> Why did you pick what you picked, Ryan? <laughs> yes, last but not least, clearly the best team. So first I went with you uh, because endless puns right there. That's me, I know. You're never going to run out. <laughs> never going to run out of fun with you. <laughs> Anyways, so you as a bonsai, not just a pun, um, I also picked it because it's, in my experience, this is one that I've always seen pictures of. It it has very hard deadwood, very striking white deadwood, and it contrasts with the red live vein. And then it's got this dark green, evergreen foliage. So I've always thought it was a beautiful tree, and I've seen very old examples of one. I know the Pacific Bonsai Museum has one. Uh, Graham Potter in the UK, he's got lots of good videos of him carving on them. So I had uh, wanted one in my collection for a long time. And then this year, I had a lot of surprising opportunities to dig them up. And so far, I think the success rate has been pretty high. Like, first time digging in that genus, pretty much. And they seem very resilient. Um, so I, I've also heard that they backbud pretty well, not necessarily on the oldest wood, but on the more recent wood in the last couple years. Uh, so when you're pruning on them, they ramify very quickly and very easily. And wiring them is not really a challenge. So, uh, And since they survive digging well, they seem like they might be a good beginner species for someone trying to break into outdoor bonsai. Um, so that's... So Ryan, Ryan, real quick with yous, yeah. they use a lot of landscaping because of the fact that they can grow in full shade and not miss a beat. Uh -huh. And you can cut them pretty much back to no foliage and they will sprout on older wood. Depending yeah. on the genus. I will like, say, uh, I thought that that was the case. So back in February of this year. Just don't eat the bear trees. They're poisonous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't eat them. Don't do that. But in February, there was a construction site here on campus. Um, and so they were tearing out all of these old ewes. And so my a couple of our friends, we went to go salvage them. And I thought that they were kind of like bald cypress. So I cut them back pretty severely. One of them I left like one branch on. The other ones I left no branches on just to fit them in the car. And then <laughs> that night after we did all of that, I messaged Bruce Baker. He's Michigan. Uh, and he's like, you expert. Uh, so he told me after the fact that you pretty much can't get away with cutting off all of the foliage, but you can cut off a lot of it. So yeah, all the ones that I cut off all of the foliage, they didn't last. Um, <laughs> But he did say, I don't know, maybe it's just the more mild climate in the UK, but he said that people in the UK, they can cut off almost all the foliage or all of it and still get back budding. So that may be a regional difference. Um, but if you want to be cautious, don't cut off all of the foliage. Leave some green. But also the dependency too down. being, is it in the ground or in a pot, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that's that could be a variable too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, generally most conifers, I almost would never cut back to nothing like a bear cut. It's mm-hmm. I think it's pretty risky across the board, most conifers. Uh, but what you're saying about like use back budding on like still green, but older growth is definitely true because when we worked on them on Japan and actually in a sense use very easy to work on because say like you're styling and you're setting the tree and say if you focus just purely on putting good structure, sometimes the foliage is too long. And so say on species like junipers and other conifers, and this is not a good practice to do, um, but sometimes a lot of both professionals and hobbyists will just take a long branch and just like squiggle it in and just push, push it in, right? <laughs> Make it shorter by the physical length is not shorter, but just by like the compressing the lines, right? And there's like a time limit, how long that can look good because you basically compromise the structure of the tree. Um, But on use, because its growth ability is very reliable, as long as there's leaves and say you set that line and the branch is too long, you can just quite literally cut it to profile, um, which makes it very easy to work and to work very cleanly. Um, So I definitely a great great species for bonsai. Yeah. I would have picked that one also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, uh, I think that's pretty much everything I have to say about use. Um, so birch I chose because it's one that I don't have any of yet. I also didn't have spruce, so I wasn't that drawn to it, but, um, our friend Brian, I went digging with him this past spring in some new areas in Southern Ohio. So we found like a, a river stream bed, and we found a lot of birch trees there. So he dug one over there. I dug one of our native cherries there. So we're trying to experiment a little bit more with those natives. Um, but so far, from what I've heard reported from him, it survived the digging pretty well. And I have heard from a couple other people that birch can make good bonsai, but I think it's maybe it's taken a while for people to pick up what to do with them or the fact that they could be used. Um, Look Maybe up the Julian, name. You have some ideas, or if you've heard anything more about that, but I think part of it is related to that they need a lot of water, right? And look at look up the name Dennis Votilla or Votilla. He's in Portland. He has um, some award winning birch trees and pears. Um, I think he showed a birch in the national show in twenty eighteen. Yeah, and I think um, Sergio Quan bought. Uh, maybe he bought his birch from Dennis, or he has one for sure. Mm. Yeah. The, the only kind of cavet I've heard anything in like the, was that like the pop poplar family or mm-hmm. what the, then like birch, alder, like aspens, cottonwoods, right? These are all the same family is that like in, at least in nature, they are a quote unquote short lived species. And that say like, I mean, 60, 70 years, that's longer than most people's practicing bonsai. And so maybe that doesn't really matter, but it, it's a very much in a sense, like a one generation tree and where I don't know if any super long lived ones are in existence where, and what, and what I've seen is when the tree just physically gets old enough, like, like normally, like all of these in that like poplar family, when the trunks get old, right, they just rejuvenate from the roots. At at some point, the wood gets physically old enough that it doesn't want to push like new growth through it. So I would say if, and sometimes it could just be out of your control, maybe some big stressor or it got a really bad fungus issue. It could be a risk where the tree abandons old branches, right? And it's just like mass dieback and you have to regrow and build something new again. 
and I think they look really nice with like the the bark contrast and then with the leaves. Um, but I think that's like a, a hesitation that I've I've seen a lot where there's some risk there um, in terms of the dieback and longevity of the species. Yeah, this group of uh, birch in the genus, there's a good mm. variety of different barks. Like some of them have that really smooth paper bark, right? Yeah, and some of yeah. them have an exfoliating mm-hmm. paper bark. And then others have a more chunky exfoliating. And yeah. then others are more like chunky on the old areas and then really smooth and uh, like the white or silver on the upper younger growth. So that could be a lot of interesting contrast to go with your fall leaves or or what have you that might be unique to this group that you don't really see in a lot of other other types of trees Um, and then the last one that i picked is holly so kind of the theme of the last two picks that i made were experimenting and like just being interested in trying new uh, trees that may have some merit so i have seen one bonsai holly it was one of dan robinson's and it was, I remember it was early on when I started to volunteer with him. So his had the thorny leaves and the, the red berries and everything. And I have no idea what happened to it. But one, I think it was over the winter, it somehow died. But I know that Jonas Dupuis also has different species of holly, but he does, does have one that was award-winning. Uh, I think it was at the Pacific Bonsai Expo. And I know there's a lot of other types of holly out there. So they don't all have the thorns and maybe some of them like have different colors of berries, but it seems like a promising areas for another promising genus for exploration. So that's why I picked those three. Some of them have different colored leaves too, different oh, yeah? Um, yeah, patternings and stuff. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up uh, this whole great experiment in <laughs> history storytelling that I had in mind. Yeah. So, uh, how was it for you, Julian, and, and everyone? What's that? Oh, I was like, how was it for Julian? Um, <laughs> I would say like the hard part. I mean, because we're we're like quite literally just reading off a sheet. That I think you definitely can tell, like listening to it, like because the conversation flow is like broken. You can definitely tell we're like reading off something. <laughs> and uh, and so maybe like the middle segment of this podcast is pretty fragmented where there's there's like so many tangents and then conversations broken up by just like this kind of like monologue of talking. And so, yeah, I mean, that's like a huge if you're like editing this, Ryan, that's like a huge amount of work. Right? Yeah, to, I'm just going to let it, it be, flow. You know? flow they well. get what they get. <laughs> They can tell so, us if they enjoyed it or not, and so can you. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would say that's the one, one I guess sort of issue where it's like a little, a little bit of, <laughs> a little bit of everything, right? Kind of all over the mm. place. Um, yeah, <laughs> like art, right? Modern podcast. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hmm. I think that's everything that we wanted to cover today. So thanks, Julian, Kelly, and Kevin for embarking mm-hmm. on this experiment with me. And to our listeners, you guys can email us or message us on the Bonsai Time Podcast social media. Whose team did you like the best? (laughs) Yeah. And if you have other ideas for Christmassy or holiday tree topics we should cover for next year's episode, hit us with that too. Black Hill Spruce. (laughs) Mm. Julian, where can people find you? 
Um, yeah, uh, I have a website. It's um, just bonsai.com with like J-U-S-T bonsai.com. Um, and then right I'm on Instagram, Facebook. If you just search my name, it'll be there. Um, and yeah, people can just either DM me on any of the social media or just contact me through my website. I'm open for any kind of questions or inquiries. And um, and yeah, yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I think that's um, it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, Julian, we hope to have you on again sometime. Hope we didn't scare you off with our crazy oh, experiments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like send me a message. I mean, I'm kind of open for whatever. So, <laughs> no, yeah. we hope to get you up to Ohio sometime. We were just talking about it in our board meeting. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, hopefully, I've, I've, never, I've never been to Ohio before. So that would be another, a new state. It's not as much corn as in Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely a lot of soybeans though. But mm-hmm. um, Kelly, thanks for joining. Thank you guys. Oh yeah, this was a uh, 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 first episode Kelly's ever been on with us. Mm-hmm. For, oh, okay. So Julian, yeah. uh, you've yeah. brought in both. <laughs> <There> you <go. laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool. Thanks for setting us up, Brian. I'm going to get going. You guys have a wonderful holiday. Oh, we'll shit, it's like midnight. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'll check on my daughter. Yeah, everybody have a good night. <laughs> yeah. All right. Merry Christmas, everyone. Yeah, Happy holidays. Bye. Merry Christmas. On. Take it easy. Today's episode was recorded, edited, and produced by Ryan Houston, Kevin Ferris, and Kelly Louie. To find out more and see pictures relevant to today's topic or sponsors, see the show notes linked in the description or at bonsaitimepodcast.com. To submit questions, suggestions, or tree pictures for future discussion, find the contact form also on our website or message us directly at bonsaitimepodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to support us in making more episodes, consider rating us, sharing with friends, donating, or becoming a sponsor. Our music was provided by Mini Cancer. To find more of their work, check out their SoundCloud and Bandcamp pages. To stay in touch with us, subscribe to us in your podcast app or find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook at Bonsai Time Podcast, or on TikTok at Bonsai Time Pod. Also, Kevin and Kelly are at Kevin underscore Ferris PNW and Bonsai with Kelly, respectively, on Instagram. And Ryan is in vivo bonsai.com and on all social media. Remember, have fun and bonsai on. <laughs>